If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Short disclaimer, this podcast is in no way affiliated with the Stars production or Diana Gabaldon. All views expressed are solely our own. Welcome to the Outlander podcast, where the men are kilted, the women are winsome, and the whiskey is neat. Welcome to episode 92 of the Outlander podcast. I'm Ginger. And I'm Summer. And we are in love with all things Outlander. I'm excited for this one. I'm sorry. I jumped you. You didn't jump. I didn't. Jumping me would would imply that I walked somewhere and you jumped out from behind something and then beat me and stole my money. I verbally jumped in front of you. It's it's irrelevant. I mean, we're actually next to each other and you can... (laughs) You can say whatever you want. It's it's the the joy of being part of a podcast of two people. One of you is always talking. <laughs> that being said, welcome to our third episode of the week. Oh my gosh. Can we just I'm getting tired of hearing us talk now. I mean, once a week is already a lot. Well, the good thing is is these these special bonus episodes are a lot less of us talking and a lot more of somebody so you might actually want to hear from. Want to hear from. I mean, hopefully. I mean, if they're not when they figured this out. I mean, obviously, we've already teased yeah. this episode, so by the time you're listening to this, you already know who we're about to introduce, but it's kind of a big deal. For us, it's a big deal. We're thrilled and tickled and all of the above. Any any words you want to put in there? Well, yes. Suffice it to say, it was a very, very, very exciting interview for us to get and for us to, to get to be a part of. I mean, it was not something I ever anticipated us ever being able to do. <laughs> not so soon, maybe. Right. And definitely, there was some nausea. I mean, I, I held it together. I was more afraid I was going to, like, do something worse than that. <laughs> then, then be nauseous. Well, you know. I could, th- I could think of worse things. <laughs> of course. Point is, there was no verbal diarrhea, no any of that. So, I mean, it was... I think we held our shiz together pretty well, considering. Pretty decently, yeah. Okay, so let's stop doing it. So, without further ado, uh, here is our interview with the one and only Ronald D. Moore. Hi, Mr. Moore. Hi. Hello. How are you? We're doing well. How are you? Thank you. you? Oh, I'm fine. Excellent. Our first question is, having finished the filming of season one and having its airing almost complete, what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned that you're taking into account while preparing for season two? Probably a variety of lessons, really. I mean, the the scope and scale of the production, you know, is is a bit eye-opening. We sort of knew going into year one, that this was a big project, but it, it was a very big project. You know, the the nature of the story, the fact that it travels, you know, from location to location, that there's no standing sets, that you're, you know, uh, shooting on location in Scotland, the weather, the hours of daylight. I mean, there's just a lot of lessons learned in year one, just in terms of, you know, the physical challenges of, of mounting a production like this um, in Scotland are enormous. And, you know, the second year is starting a whole new series in, in essence because there's really nothing 
of uh, of the first season that we get to go back to. You know, Lollybrook makes a brief appearance in book two, and then he'll make a brief appearance in season two. And other than that, you know, it's all new sets, it's all new uh, set decoration, it's all new costumes, it's all new locations. So you know, we're we're going into the second year with our eyes a little wider open in terms of okay, this is a big, ambitious show with a lot of complications, and that's that's probably the the primary thing that we 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 learned. So knowing that the the medium of translating a book into a television series, you have to be prepared to lose lose some things you maybe loved from the books. Were there any scenes that you just it, it just gutted you to have to cut, or or that you knew for sure you had to keep? Well, you know, you sort of keep your eye on what you think are the the, the iconic moments from the book, or the, the things that you know any reader of the book sort of remembers. And so throughout the process of, of breaking them in the writer's room and working on the scripts, you sort of are always bearing those in mind. I think I don't know that there's really anything that we left out of the book. Uh, for first season that we regret or that I regret. There, there's, you know, there's scenes, individual moments, pieces of material that ended up on the cutting room floor, a lot of which I sort of, you know, talk about either in the podcasts or, um, you know, with some of the deleted scenes that we released, sort of talking about why they were cut and sort of, you know, what was cool about them. And, but nothing really big from the book. You know, I'd say that we, we, we tried very hard to hit all the, the big moments and to really make sure that all the things that were really, you know, part of the fabric of the Outlander universe were, were kind of present. And so I kind of feel satisfied on that account. Now you've mentioned or discussed before how the writer's room works to break the book, break the story down into its arc, into its elements, into its chunks for episodes. We did talk about the process before we sat down and did it. Um, I, you know, talked to the writers and I said, all right, you know, this is kind of new territory, but here's sort of how I want to approach it. None of us have ever tried, done a, a TV adaptation like this. So let's start with, you know, let's outline the book. We had the assistants write up a fairly detailed document that had that listed literally every scene in the book, you know, what happened in every single scene. So it was this long file. And, and then um, we t- translated that again to cards and put them up on a board, big white whiteboard in, the, in our, uh, our conference room. And then just sort of reduced it to sort of, you know, okay, well, here's the book order of events. Here's the book order of scenes. Now let's start talking about where we cut it up into 16 discrete hours. And then once we had that, then we started focusing in on individual episodes. So it was kind of a process where you started from, let's take the, the book version. Let's now shift that to a board let's figure out where we want the hours to be and then sort of drill down you know, and focus more intensely within each episode. And then we'd also have assistants would go through the book and write up every line of dialogue that was actually said in the book. You know, there's times when Diana's just describing a conversation and there's times when she's actually have writing down the conversation. So let's have all that dialogue in a separate file available to writers when they're working on individual scenes. So once the season is broken down and the discrete hours are kind of decided upon, who gets to decide or choose which writer gets which? Do they fight over it? Do you pull names out of a hat? Uh, I like to have the writers sort of tie their hands with a leather strap and offer them a knife and then just sort of close the door. <laughs> it's a very um, website story. <laughs> it's very, and it works. You'd be surprised. Uh, actually, it's kind of a combination of writer preference and also sort of batting order, as it were. You know, if you with um, to get through the whole season, everyone has to do X number of scripts. 
you know, you don't want writers having to do them back to back, and you also don't want, you know, separated by too much. But within the first grouping, people kind of gravitated toward the one they wanted to do. I had already sort of set up to do the first two uh, alone, so then it was sort of, you know, just lining up writers that wanted to do the next grouping. And once that grouping had kind of been established, you sort of then started repeating your order as you got as you got deeper in. But yeah, definitely writers switch the switch the lineup now and again because someone will have an affinity for a particular story. There haven't really been situations where two writers wanted to do the same one. It was it was usually sort of, you know, yeah, I could do that one or you could do that one, but you really want to do that one, so I'll go do this other one. You know, it, it works itself out pretty amicably. I know TV shows and things are like our children, for, I'm assuming, for you. Do you have a favorite episode? Um, I have a few. You know, I really I really liked episode six, the Garrison Commander episode. Uh, I really like uh, the upcoming episode 14, the search episode. Uh, but I also really like the wedding. I really like the witch trial. Uh, I really liked episode eight. You know, they are sort of all like your children in, in various forms. So, Mr. Moore, you are known for your world building. In season one, this was necessary to bring viewers in and get them invested in the time, space, and the characters. Going into season two, we have the same time and the same characters, but a different space. Does this require further world building? And if so, what are its challenges, this world extension? Yeah, it's very challenging the second season because usually a, a TV show, once you've established and you've gotten into your second season, you, you're starting to relax a little bit because at least you, you've set up your world and you know what it is. You know, the Galactica is, is there, the Enterprise is there, you know, or you know what the hospital is, or, you know, now you've shot the police station 50 times and you get it. With this series, you know, we're just starting all over again. And the world that we're trying to now build doesn't really exist in Scotland, which is where our base production is. You know, the first half of the season is in Paris of the 18th century. Okay, well, even Paris doesn't look like Paris of the 18th century anymore. So we're trying to create that world in a variety of ways. You know, we'll build in some interior sets in Scotland. We will look for some locations in Scotland for things like maybe gardens or parks that you know, bits of alleyway that we might be able to find that would uh, sort of feel like you're in Paris. We'll also probably be going to Eastern Europe. We've taken a couple of scouting trips there already. Uh, there are streets in the old cities in, in Eastern Europe, that, you know, in like Prague, that feel much more like 18th century Paris. So there's a good chance of be doing that. There's also some uh, uh, building, uh, some palaces and structures in the south of England, uh, whose interiors might lend themselves to feel French or like Versailles. So it's, and then you've also got, you know, the CGI world that we'll be creating more exteriors from. So putting the Paris section, the Paris world together is very complex. It's a much bigger jigsaw puzzle than what we had to do first season because everything, we were doing everything in Scotland. But, you know, you're shooting Scotland for Scotland, which also which always, uh, you know, makes things a lot easier. This is shooting Scotland for another country, another time, and it has to be sort of cobbled together from a, a variety of sources. So it's, it's a much bigger world-building project. You mentioned um, <clears throat> Battlestar Galactica and the Enterprise. If you could go back uh, and rewrite or rework either of the any of the shows, the iconic shows you've worked for in the past, but do them for a cable network like Stars, where you didn't really have your hands tied by like broadcast regulations. Do you think you would have done 
anything differently? Uh, Battlestar wouldn't be remarkably different. Um, it, you know, it probably would have been a little bit more graphic. It probably uh, would have been a little bit more violent in sort of how we portrayed action scenes and blood and you know that kind of stuff. But not radically. You know, it, it would not have been a radically different show. That show, I pretty mm-hmm. much got to do just about anything I wanted mm-hmm. and push them pretty hard. You know, if we'd had a much bigger budget in the cable space, we would have seen more more of the other ships in the civilian fleet, certainly, and, and would have seen more uh, spaces aboard the Galactica. It would have been stuff like that. With Trek, um, if you were doing Star Trek as a cable network, it would be a whole different animal. You know, you'd really, I'd have to, you'd have to give that some real thought, because you're, if you're going to take that series, any of the series, the original series, next-gen, deep space, whatever, if you took any of those shows into premium cable, you'd really have to think about, well, what are you trying to do with Star Trek? Where is it going? You know, what is the space allowing you to, what is the cable space allowing you to do that you weren't doing on in more of a commercial network? Because uh, it's hard. Star Trek is still a morality play. It's, it's still, in a, you know, about big ideas and ethics. And so it's not immediately apparent that you'd need more blood and gore and nudity to tell that story. But there were certainly episodes where our hands were kind of tied because we couldn't really get into the material. And, you know, a premium cable space, again, the budget would be bigger. And so you could really have a cool enterprise. You could do more exotic aliens. You could do, you know, a, a bigger sort of view of, of, uh, of, the, of, uh, of the future, which would, be, which would be cool. You have established Outlander and are currently working on season two. If we are fortunate to get all the books to screen, do you foresee yourself maintaining your role as showrunner? Uh, I can only sort of think of this in one year at a time. <laughs> you, start talking about eight, you start talking about eight books, which is like eight to ten years of my life. It makes me very tired. So I don't know. All I know is I'm doing this season. Very fair. Very fair. <laughs> um, I've, I've noticed in television in general and to premium television, male nudity is treated so, so much more differently than female nudity. A lot of times it's more of a shock value. Like, I don't, I don't know if, if they do it to, to make the, the male body is supposed to be shocking or offensive, but the women are always shown and it's like gratuitous and like sexual. And then every now and again you see when you do come up against the full frontal male nudity, it's always kind of in an aggressive manner. And I'm wondering if, if we're ever going to move past that. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. That's a pretty broad sociological question, really. You know, it's it's about how we view male and female bodies, you know, in popular culture, how we view them in art, you know, how we view them, you know, personally and, you know, in, pub- in the public space as well as in the private space. I mean, that's really a difficult one. You know, I know, you know, when you're doing it in the show, you're sort of aware of what the conventions are and you are aware that, you know, male full frontal is, is just, for whatever reason, a bigger deal uh, than female. And at the same time, you're trying to, you're also scratching your head a little bit and going, okay, so why do I want to see full frontal male in this particular moment? And you know, sort of asking yourself the same question on female. Why do I want to see full frontal female in, in this particular moment? What's the value to the story? You know, where are we, where, what are we doing here? You know, I don't, I don't know. To, to quote Elaine Bennett from Seinfeld, you know, the the female body is a work of art, and the male body is, is functional and vaguely simian. And who wants to see that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say that the, the 
female nudity in, in Outlander is not gratuitous, and I, I appreciate that. A lot of television shows, premium cable, they're like, hey, we're premium cable. We can show nudity, so we're going to have to show it for at least 10 minutes for every episode. And I feel like with Outlander, it's really plot-driven. Well, good. I appreciate that. We, we, we do talk about it. It was something we, we said was important going into the project. You know, when you're adapting a piece of material that does have, you know, a, a strong uh, sensual and erotic component to it, you know, okay, this is part of the show, but let's make sure it's part of the show, that it's not just something that's, you know, stuck on top and that we're just doing it for the sake of doing it. And have, let it have meaning. Let it, let it work within the scenes. It's not just sort of gratuitous or distracting. So season one was, was 16 episodes. Um, I know that when season two was announced, uh, there was a decision that it was going to, it was going to be 13 episodes instead of 16. Um, it was just a mutual decision um, based on what you think you could accomplish the story in 13 episodes, or was there something handed down by your production companies? Or uh, it, was a, it was a complicated decision because it had a lot of different components to it. There's the, the book itself, and you'll notice that the second book is also the, the thinnest of the books. Um, there's uh, the number of episodes that the network typically orders. Stars typically didn't order seasons of 16. I mean, that was an extraordinary uh, order for them for, for a TV show. They, their orders are more typically 8s and 10. So we were like almost twice their typical order going in. Then when we started looking forward, having discussions about cost and, again, their air schedule and the books and adaptation, and, you know, it was, a, it was a big conversation between uh, the production, myself, stars and Sony television who produces the show. And ultimately we sort of came to a figure of let's do 13 and let's say that going forward, they'll all be at least 13 is the way we set it. So that we know that we're not going to do any of these massive books for less than that, but maybe, you know, some seasons are, are going to fit in 13 and, and that's a good number. 13 is a very typical cable order. So it makes international sales packages easy. You know, it's a lot of just sort of, number crunching stuff that kind of gets you to some of these some of these figures but 13 kind of typical cable order so it kind of put us into that space and it's still more episodes per season than what stars you know usually broadcast so it's kind of still saying that they strongly uh, believe in the series and that they're 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 really willing to, to pay more for it you mentioned 13 minimum or 13 or more the possibility is for further seasons have you or anyone in production just kind of brainstorming even thought about the possibility of the need, because the books do grow in length, the need for potentially uh, splitting a book, uh, namely Voyager, without giving any uh, spoilers? We, we have talked about that but in very just general terms. And we, sure. we talked about that you know, when I first sold the series, actually, the stars, and just said, uh, you know, when you look ahead on some of these books, some of these books are really large, like Voyager, and we might want to start talking about splitting them into more than one season, and, and every once in a while, that, that conversation is kind of revisited. But you tend to kind of just focus on the season that's in front of you because they only order one season at a time. So there's really no ongoing conversation at all about uh, about anything past season two. I mean, we're just focused on season two, and we're optimistic and hopeful we'll get a season three. That's still pretty far over the horizon for us at this moment. So do you think you could survive in 18th century Scotland? Um I don't know. It's a pretty cold place. It's a pretty wet place. <laughs> there don't seem to be a lot of hot showers. I'm a little dubious on the food. And I know that there's no penicillin, so I'm not sure I'm, I'm really suited for, for 18th century Scotland life. We were just wondering if it being in 
uh, 18th century Scotland and it, trying to build this historical world, if it was less likely that there might be something like an Easter egg, because if it's too, it can't be anachronistic. Yeah, I don't think we've done anything like that deliberately. I mean, maybe the art department or customs slips in something you know, on their own here and there, but I don't think there's really much, uh, much like that, you know, that 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 I know of. So you're not going to translate fracking into Gaelic and have somebody say that? <laughs> well, there's an idea. There's an, let me think about that. <laughs> so we try to do our best to maintain kind of a spoiler-free zone on our podcast for the non-book readers, but I just want to know. Um, how you intend to handle the dinosaurs in season three? Will they be CGI, or do you have enough of a enough of a budget from Sony and Stars that you might start your own Jurassic Park? Well, we're going. We've been in negotiations with using some of the old animatronics from the original Jurassic Park, which are just sitting around the Universal lot. So we thought we could probably get our hands on those and ship them to Scotland piecemeal. But we're running into customs issues, so we'll just have to wait and see. It's great to know that you guys are truly thinking that far ahead. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) If you had one choice of whiskey left to drink for the rest of your life, which would it be? Um, I think it would probably be Glenn Ross. I'm writing that down. Glenn Ross. It's pretty good. It's it's not cheap, but it's pretty good. (laughs) um, Does anyone call you himself on set. I know Diana gets called himself by a lot of her fans. I'm just curious if you've taken on that title. No, I have not. <laughs> nor, not. nor am I looking to. <laughs> <laughs> if you, if there was someone who was planning a trip to Scotland, could you think of like a handful of places that you would consider like, do not miss, you must go to these places? Oh, well, yeah, I think you should go to Dune Castle, clearly, because it it looks just like it does in the show as Castle Leak. So it, you, you, any fan would get a kick out of being able to walk up to Castle Leak. So go to Dune. Um, other places are not quite so iconic within the show. You'd have to sort of track them down and sort of stand in the right spot to realize, oh, this is where we shot, where we shot so-and-so. In general, you know, you want to go to Edinburgh, you want to go to Glasgow, two very different cities. Uh, Edinburgh is uh, much more sort of what you in your mind's eye you think a Scottish city looks like with a castle you know in the middle of the in the middle of the city sort of looking down and everything and it's it's very pretty and it's you know it's just like a, a bit of a fantasy of what you think of Scotland and Glasgow is is not like that but it's hipper and it's got better food and it's kind of cooler and it's it, it's a vibrant sort of community and then take go out into the Highlands you know and just drive and just you can drive across the entire country and you can drive all the way up and up to the up to the northern reaches and then take a ferry out to the islands. You know, it's, it's a beautiful country to explore. People are very, very friendly and, and easy to get along with, and they're very helpful. And, you know, it's, it's just a great place. If you can, can spend a lot of time in Scotland just tooling around. You are your head down, purely focused on season two. There are a lot of things, of course, that must be done. Um, a lot of the, you, you've talked about recreating uh, 18th century Paris. Of course, your wife is developing, um, has a monumental task with all of these beautiful costumes that, that she is developing and all the shoes. I mean, everything we've just reading her blog. It's like, it makes me tired just to read. It's so much work that is on all is all around looking ahead at season two or which character and maybe which location are you most looking forward to introducing the viewers to um i don't know which character because there's a, a bunch of there, there's a lot of characters in book two that you've never met before so that that's really hard to say and they're all kind of interesting in their 
in their own right, you know, from Master Raymond to St. Germain to Louise, King Louis, and Fergus, and you know, Mary Hawkins, and Alex, I mean, on and on and on. There's like a lot of fascinating characters that play, you know, interesting and somewhat unexpected roles, I think, in, in storyline. I think in terms of places to go, I, I've been watching, you know, we've been building the uh, the apartment that, that uh, Jamie and Claire live in in Paris, and it's fantastic. It's a great set. Really happy with it. I think that's going to really be a great place uh, you know, to, to take people to. Um, I'm excited about the possibilities of how we're going to deliver Paris. I think we're going to be able to sell the idea of Paris in the 18th century, so that's exciting. That's a lot of challenges to it. Um, yeah, those are probably the, the, the big things. Would you say that even though it's not just one location and you, you are having to redevelop this world, it's a purely new place and uh, place in the same time in season two, that for lack of a better answer, um, a any quote-unquote home base, the closest thing to it would likely be their apartments in uh, in Paris? Yes. Okay. Yeah, which is why it's pretty much the first set that we start building. Mm. So I know this is, like, way in the future when they when they end up in America. But, I mean, are you trying to, to do as much filming as possible since you've established uh, the film studio there in Glasgow? Are you going to try to do as much filming as possible and remain in Scotland? Or or do you think you would try to move the entire production to the United States when the, the storyline does? It's really hard to say. We, we've sort of had that, ta- that question has been on the table since we... You know, since we put the put the show in Scotland to begin with, because we knew that eventually, yeah, the show does go to America, and how you handle that, it's an open question at this point, because you can argue it either way, you know, and you can argue it creatively either way, and you can argue it financially either way. So I don't really know yet. We'll have to like get to that point, and then do a lot of. I'm sure there'll be a lot of analysis, a lot of figuring out, you know, what's easier. You don't want to leave. You know, we have a tremendous production team and, and crew. You know. But, we don't really want to leave them behind and you don't really want to just start all over again. Um, packing everything up. I mean, it's a huge task to do something like that. And yet we are in Scotland and the show, the, the story is going to America. Do you start doubling Scotland for America all the way through? I mean, I, I, at this point we just legitimately don't know and we well, won't know for quite a while. In, in one respect, there are places in North Carolina where the story takes place that remarkably look a lot like Scotland. Yeah, I know. We've talked. Yeah, we talked about so, that. There's, nice. a, you know, there's a couple yeah, executives that we work favorite. with who are from North Carolina, mm-hmm. and and they come and uh, they've been to Scotland. And like this looks just like North Carolina. Well, but we did want to thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to speak with us. Okay, thank you. Bye. Holy monkey balls! <laughs> you know, I don't think I give us enough credit sometimes for not fangirling like crazy people. We do what we need to do to keep our stuff together. Right. But again, we would like to thank Ron Moore for taking some time and speaking with us. It was pretty much um, the most awesome little afternoon uh, in recent history. Yeah, since uh, definitely since Diana and Davina. I mean, I, I fangirl, you know, internally, of course, and, all, and also externally. And what we haven't said yet is that there were some questions or themes that we discussed that we couldn't share this episode, and we will be sharing them, part two, on our discussion of the Wentworth episode. Is that correct? Yes. Excellent. So thank you, as always, so much for listening. We look forward to our next episode.
Thank you to our generous audio host, Audioboom.com. Our Audioboom channel is www.audioboom.com slash channel slash OutlanderPod. Visit our website at www.outlanderpod.com. Follow us on Twitter at OutlanderPod. Find us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash OutlanderPod or email us at OutlanderPod at gmail.com.